0: Well, good morning. It's good to see each of you here. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 8, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. Almost in the middle of your Bible, a little bit further than the middle. As you find your way there, you know, we've been working our way over these past several weeks now through a series we're calling The Big Picture. And what we're attempting to do in this series is really over eight weeks walk through the biblical narrative, the biblical storyline so that we can kind of see the continuity of scripture and how from Genesis to Revelation, there is one story from beginning to end. Even though we have all of these different books of the Bible, different writers that the Holy Spirit inspired to write what we have, we have one story from beginning to end and it's a story of God's redemption and God's grace. We began with creation and we saw how that good creation didn't last very long because of the fall of sin. And then we moved on to the promise that God made with Abraham. And then last week, Stephen walked us through the next major point in that biblical narrative as he looked uh, at the Exodus with you, the story of Moses and how God raised him up to bring God's people out of captivity in Egypt to the promised land. Well, today, as we continue this story, we know that uh, one of the things that we have seen throughout this series, and what you'll see as you read the Bible from beginning to end, is that the Bible is largely dependent upon what we call covenants. Uh, You see that. Uh, In fact, covenants, we could say, some say, are the very backbone of the biblical story. And if you understand how covenants work and how God has used covenants, then, then you will understand how really the Bible fits together. You, when you get down bogged down in all of the details of Scripture, having that understanding of how those covenants are fit together in a way will really help you understand the big picture. Uh, in fact, uh, we keep going back, don't we, uh, to a particular covenant that God made with Abraham, uh, the promise that God made to Abraham. And as you would have seen last week, as you walk through the story of the Exodus, God made another covenant with his people uh, through Moses by giving them the law and holding them accountable to that law. Uh, So you keep reading the Old Testament. We're about week five into this series, and we're just now getting past Exodus. And so what I'm going to attempt to do today is cover the rest of the Old Testament with you. Sound like fun? Yes. Yes. One of the things that you saw last week is that God raises up Moses. God raises up Moses and uses him providentially and strategically to bring the people of God who were in bondage and captivity in Egypt to liberate them under their oppression and bring them out of this captivity to the land that he had promised. Remember the promise that he'd made to Abraham. And so if you keep reading the Old Testament, guess what? They make it. He brings them out of Egypt and he brings them to the promised land. And so throughout the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, you see God preparing the people for their their opportunity that they're going to have to go into the promised land. And so he gives them his law to set them apart to live as God's people. The book of Deuteronomy is really a, a sermon or a sermon series that Moses preaches to the people before they go into the promised land to take possession of it. And we know that Moses, because of a little incident that he had, wasn't allowed to go into the promised land with the people, but they do go. Joshua, the book of Joshua, recounts that story of the conquest and the taking possession of the land. You would think, well, all is well. God's promise has been fulfilled. He promised that they would have a land, He promised that their descendants would be great, and here they are, a large people uh, numerically, and they're in the land. All is good, right? Not so fast. It Doesn't take long to realize that Israel is not exactly faithful. Not exactly compliant with the instructions that God had given them in multiple ways. And so you continue to read through Joshua and then you get to the book of Judges where you see this time where Israel did not heed the warnings of God. In fact, we're told that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This evil and depravity continued to, to, to stir and fester within the people of God, and they continued to rebel against God's rule. Later on, we're going to see throughout the narrative that, that, that they become really dissatisfied in a way because they don't have a king. They look around them. All these other nations have kings and rulers, and they're like, hey, we're not satisfied with God being our king. We want a king of our own. And so God gives them exactly what they demand, and he gives them a king. And that gets us to really the important rule and reign of King David, and his royal line, and it was going to be through David that yet another covenant is established, and God says that it's going to be through this Davidic royal line, through David, that I will give you a king that will rule you forever. You're like, wow, that's a pretty impressive promise. Through David's line, through this royal line will come a king, a man who God will raise up to rule the people, and we know that, that that king was not ultimately David, was it? Even though he was a man after God's own heart, he was not perfect, he failed, he, he sinned against God, nor was he the king the Old Testament anticipated because he died. He didn't rule forever. And so we know that as God promises David there in 2 Samuel seven, that there would be a king that would sit on his throne in his line forever. Another king comes and his name is Solomon. And it's likely under Solomon that we could say that, that this golden age of Israel commences and, and it's as if it's like the high mark of Israel's day in the promised land. The temple's built, God's people are there. It's like, okay, things are going to finally get, get where they need to be. But we know that Solomon, that his rule, that his reign does not end well, does it? He doesn't finish the course. And yet God's people, as we see, it doesn't take much longer for their disobedience to become evident, for further division to take place. In fact, after Solomon, the, the nation of Israel divides into two kingdoms. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And you see that, that even in both of these kingdoms, that continue to progress in spiritual decline. They continue to follow their own ways. They continue to, to fall into and embrace idolatry. And so that's when God raises up the prophets to come and speak to the people, both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, to speak to the people, to warn the people, to call the people to repentance, that if they don't repent, that he's going to take them into captivity. He's going to send other nations to destroy them, in essence, and he's going to take them captive. And that's the purpose of the prophets. It's exactly what we see. In the northern kingdom, you have prophets like Amos and Hosea, Warning the, the, the northern kingdom of all of these things, and ultimately, they don't heed the voice of the prophets, and therefore they fall to Assyria in 722 BC. And then you have other prophets that continue to preach and, and speak to the southern kingdom, prophets like Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah. But later on, we know about 586 BC that the southern kingdom falls, and Babylon comes and takes them captive. They go into exile. And it's during exile that you have prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel that speak to the people there. There's this promise of returning to the land and eventually they do return back to the promised land that God had taken them out of, destroyed. Now they go back and they rebuild and it seems as if things are going to go well and you've got prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi that encourage the people, that speak to the people and even warn the people during that time. And that, in some way, is a summary of of the, the rest of the Old Testament. People in the promised land that they disobey, they're taken captive, they spend time in captivity, they go back to the promised land and begin to rebuild. And you would think that by that time they've gotten it, that the Old Testament is going to end on a positive note, but actually, the Old Testament doesn't end so well. The people return, they rebuild, and they continue to go back to their old ways. Today, we're going to look at the prophet Jeremiah here in Jeremiah chapter 23, and it's in the midst of that larger story that we're gonna pick up long after the people have been delivered from Egyptian captivity, and it's now that they're facing this new captivity because of their rebellion against God. And as I said earlier, Jeremiah is one of the, what we call major prophets, you've got major prophets and minor prophets, simply because of the length of the books, that's really it. Uh, Major Prophets is because it's a longer book. Uh, And so you've got him and his ministry, and his ministry was directed largely towards the southern kingdom of Judah about the same time the northern kingdom is being taken into captivity. And so there's a lot of judgment. You read the book of Jeremiah, and it's a heavy, dark book. A lot of judgment going on in this book. A lot of warning and a lot of promise that God is making to his people that he's going to hold them accountable for their idolatry and their their rebellion against him. And so this is in the midst of that dark, bleak moment in Israel's life that we come to Jeremiah chapter 23. And here it's in Jeremiah 23, and you've got a few other places throughout the book of Jeremiah where you find this, this, we could call it a thread of grace, woven deep into the darkness of Israel's day. And you find little glimpses of hope just like we find here in Jeremiah chapter 23. And so with all that said, let me read Jeremiah 23 and we're gonna see how God uses this prophet to speak a word of hope and encouragement to his people. Jeremiah chapter 23, beginning in verse one. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all of the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. Lord, would you help us now as we continue to think through this big picture, this story of redemption and hope or even on the in the backdrop of all of the sin and all of the evil that your people had committed father you still yet spoke a word of hope and grace father would you help us to see that this morning and see how it ties everything together and how we too as as a result of your promises we too can be encouraged and strengthened and find hope in you So, Lord, would you open our minds and our ears and our hearts today that we might hear your word and be changed by it? We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think for a moment about an organization you are associated with in some meaningful way. It could be your employer, it could be a business, it could be a team whatever organization comes to your mind, that you're intentionally on purpose involved with in some meaningful way. What is your attitude towards the reputation of that particular group? Are you indifferent? Or do you have a deep-rooted interest in how this organization represents itself? Do you care what kind of image it cultivates? Of course, when you think about that, of course, the reputation of something that you are deeply committed to matters much to you. That's why there's so much sadness for Washington Redskins fans these days, right? Amen. Think about that, though. When you think, think about yourself being so deeply committed to the reputation of a group or something that you're, that you're committed to, you're, you're, you, you desire for that organization, whatever it may be, to represent itself well. Well, when we read the biblical narrative, we see that God would feel no less about the reputation of his own people. He was deeply concerned about, not only about their well-being, but also about their reputation. And the reason that he was deeply concerned about their reputation was because it was their reputation that ultimately pointed to his reputation. To his character, to his glory, to who he is. And so these were the chosen people of God that he had called out and put into the land. He had named them as his own. He had put his name on his people. He cared deeply about their lives. And what we find throughout the biblical storyline is that not only did Israel struggle living up to the standard of God's holy name and holy character, they failed miserably. Friends, you need to understand something about the people of God. These were not people who, they loved God and they just happened to mess up every now and then. This is not their story. These are idolaters. They would sacrifice their own children at times to false gods, is how bad things had become in Israel. So we find them struggling. We find them failing. So what did this mean then about the promise that God had made back to Abraham. Your descendants are going to be the num- as, as numerous as the stars in the sky. You're going to be in your land. You're going to be known as my people. And yet, here we find throughout the Old Testament story, God's people failing miserably, not reflecting his character at all. In fact, turning their backs completely against him. What did that mean about the promise? What we know as we continue to read is that though, peop- though the people of God continued to fail miserably, though the people of God continued to seek their own ways, God's promise remained intact and in full, even when all perhaps would have seemed lost. And what Jeremiah does here in Jeremiah 23 and in other places, we can see it as well, this is just a good place to go. Jeremiah shows us that God's promise would be kept because he, Because he would rescue his people, he would rule his people, and he would renew his people by his grace and by his power. As we look at our text this morning, you're going to notice kind of a a pattern here. In fact, you see it in verse 2, the second half of verse 2, you see it in verse 5, and again in verse 7. You see it, maybe in your translations, it says, behold, behold. In the ESV, which I'm preaching from this morning, you see in verse 2, behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord, then I will gather. And again in verse 5, behold, the days are coming. Then again in verse 7, behold, the days are coming. And so what we see here in these, in these three beholds are themes, very important themes that continue to develop and emerge throughout this narrative. And I want us to kind of hang our hats on those themes this morning as we walk through this text. Three themes that are important as we consider the promises of God. Number one, we see the theme of a gathered remnant, a gathered remnant. And you see that there in verses one through four. So far in Jeremiah, if you were to read the first 22 chapters of Jeremiah, what you will find is God calling Israel's sin out and he is promising swift and total justice. Now we get to chapter 23 and we see even a woe that is pronounced against the shepherds of Israel and shepherds would have included not just the religious leaders of the day but also the kings and the rulers. Not only had the people grown corrupt, so had their leaders. In fact, it was largely due to the leaders that the people continued in their corruption. mismanage the neglect of, of their own people, and, and, they, cont- and they, they continue to, to prove themselves unfaithful. And certainly you can see that to some degree, can't you? Throughout the course of human history, the downfall of nations and peoples often have been the result of bad shepherding and bad leading. As we think about that for a moment, if we go back to the promise God made to Abraham, you could find yourself troubled at this moment. You, you see that... 22 chapters so far of nothing but judgment and promise of justice because of their rebellion and their sin and now he's calling out the leaders and and pronouncing a woe upon the leaders, a cursing. God's people were supposed to be as numerous as the stars in the sky living in the land that God had promised, reflecting his character. And now due to the fact that they had broken covenant with God, the covenant that God made through Moses, They were going to be scattered and the land plundered and overtaken by other nations. How can that be? How can we have a captive people, a destroyed nation, a temple in ruins, and God's promise still intact? It's because of his grace and because of his power two things that we're told here in these first four verses. And number one, God is going to deal with the unfaithful leaders. He's going to to deal with them. We see that there, don't we? In verse two, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And the second thing he promises to do, he says this. He says, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all of the countries where I have driven them. Notice this is the work of God. He drove them out of their land because of their sin against him. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Not only that, he promises to give them shepherds. So God himself is going to gather his sheep from the nations and bring them back to their fold. And we, I think, have historical accounts of him doing just that. You read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah there in the Old Testament. It's a historical account of God bringing his people back from exile, putting them back in the land, and even giving them shepherds like Ezra and Nehemiah to care for them, to tend to them. So in some ways, this has been fulfilled in some way. And yet we know that there's something more. And as we consider what the Lord promises his people, I think there are several truths we need to, to, to point out at this this point reminder number one is that God is always faithful to his standard as Stephen pointed out last week God delivered his people from the oppression they had in Egypt and then he gives them the law to live by that order is important God does not bring them out through the keeping of the law he brings them out as an act of his grace his sovereign grace he brings them out and then he gives them his law to live by We call that the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant through Moses. God says, here are the laws that you're to live by. You could summarize them in the Ten Commandments, we could say. And if you live by them, you will have blessing. If you disobey them, you won't be cursed. You find that fleshed out pretty much in detail in the book of Deuteronomy. It's different than the covenant God made with Abraham in that the covenant God made with Moses involved God's people at this point. The one with Abraham was God making the promise and God keeping the promise and the covenant he makes with Moses, it's God making a promise and calling the people also to be part of that. And of course, we continue to read the the narrative, they fell miserably to live up to their part of the covenant and they would face severe consequences for doing so. It's exactly what unfolds through, and this is what we're dealing with now. Their rejection, their disobedience to the covenant God made with Moses, is now going to be the is now going to be the reason that they're going to be taken out of the land and put into captivity. And yet, God shows His amazing patience with His people. He sends prophets to them to warn them, to call them to repentance. To teach them, to remind them of the covenant, to, to remind them of their promises that they had made to God. Not just his promises that he made to them. And yet Israel persists in waywardness and sin. And so God responds with appropriate justice. He calls them to repent. They don't and therefore they, they reap the consequences of their own sin and rebellion. And really you think about Israel's story as really a snapshot of all of us to some degree, isn't it? One of the things that we need to remind ourselves is that God never reduces his standards because we can't keep up to it. God's standards remain the same. He is holy and he's called us to be holy. And it's not as if God looks at us and says, okay, they can't quite live up to what I'm just going to lower my standard. I can't do it. I'm going to lower my standard again. I'm just going to keep lowering the standard until they can finally hit something or get something right. That's not how God works. He is holy and righteous and pure, and his standard is always the same, and it never changes. And when God's people disobey him and fall short of that standard, he will hold them accountable. He is a just God, and we can count on him being that way. So he never reduces his standards, and he holds his people, and even us today, he holds us accountable to them. Second truth that we see is that God, though he holds fast to his standards, he is gracious to sinners. Friends, as I said earlier, things in Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms, were bad, really bad. Again, it's not just as if they would go to the temple and then have a bad week. These were deeply rooted. This was a deeply rooted rebellion. This was people entrenched in idolatry, evil flourish. In Jeremiah 2, verse 28, we get a little picture here of, of God's response to them through Jeremiah. He says, in verse 28 of chapter two, "But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble, For as many as your cities are, your gods are your gods, O Judah." He, he's pointing out their idolatry. "You've made all of these gods, let them save you." In Jeremiah 5 verse 22, he says, "For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children." This is God's indictment to his own people. They have no understanding, they are wise in doing evil, but how to do good, they know not. For almost 45 chapters in Jeremiah, we find description after description after description of this sort of thing, and warning and promise of judgment and justice. And yet, In the midst of all of that darkness, in the midst of all of that, that promise of justice and judgment, we find threads of grace woven all throughout. God had every right to send his people off into captivity. He had every right to let them face the consequences they had brought upon themselves. And he does, but only for a time. They're taken into captivity. And then he calls out the unfaithful shepherds. And then he says, not only will I deal with them, but I will gather my people again. I have a remnant. I have a people who belong to me. I will gather them. I will be their shepherd. What we see here, brothers and sisters, is that though just... As bad as things were and as bad as God's people had grown, he still loved them. He was committed to them without question. You need to understand something as well as we think about the people of God. We kind of think about the group of or the nation of Israel or Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. We think about them in a group One of the beautiful things we see in the Old Testament is not only was God concerned with his people as a whole, he was concerned with them on the personal level. He knew them by name. One of the beautiful, you you miss this if you just read through these chapters and just skim over. You get to those names, you know, those chapters that just have a list of names and you're like, how helpful is this? Let's just move to the next chapter. Friends, understand When you read Ezra and Nehemiah, for example, when they return back to the land, the text there does not say, and the people slowly began to return. In Ezra chapter two and in Nehemiah chapter seven, he calls them out by name. The sons of Arah, 775. The sons of Joab, 2,812. The sons of Gibar, 95. The list goes on. He's naming and he's numbering. He even counts their mules. The specificity with which God's grace works is mind-blowing. This is not just Israel. These are people's faces and names and families that he has in mind. It's a beautiful picture of his grace that God's grace is not just for a nation, it's for individuals. Grace is not something that's just generally applied to rebellious masses. Grace is applied to the rebellious sinner. And brothers and sisters, that is good news for you and for me. When Jesus ultimately comes and goes to a cross, he doesn't go to a cross just for the masses. He has names and faces and numbers in mind when he sheds his blood. He cleanses us from our sin and clothes us in righteousness. God is so gracious to sinners. That's what we see, even in the Old Testament. Don't let people tell you the Old Testament's just an angry God and the New Testament's a loving God. Brothers and sisters, you see grace from beginning to end. Even with all of the the justice and all of the judgment, all of the the sinfulness of God's people, it is grace from beginning to end that will gather his people and keep his people for himself. So, first theme is a gathered remnant. Remnant second theme that we see in this text is a righteous king. Verses five and six. The second behold. Behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Second promise God makes here in this chapter is a promise that not only looks to the return from exile, but well beyond the return from exile. He's just called out the unrighteous shepherds of Israel, but now he says that the days are coming when he would raise up a righteous branch or a righteous shoot of David. And he, this one that he's going to raise up shall reign as king. In other words, not only is God going to gather his remnant, he's going to put them back in the land and he's going to give them a king. And this king, we're told, again, would come from David's line. And he would be righteous. Isaiah prophesied of this one in Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven. We know that passage pretty well, especially around Christmas. Isaiah said of this same one, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And listen, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We know that God's promise here was fulfilled in some degree when the people returned from exile. They rebuilt the city, the temple's rebuilt. And God did appoint faithful shepherds such as Ezra and Nehemiah to lead the people. But there's something to this promise that, that looks well beyond the exile, not just to a shepherd, but to a king. Friends, these promises, as we know, would be fulfilled when Jesus would come. And get this, Jesus would come as the good shepherd, and as the king of kings. In fact, you see, even in his ministry, in John chapter 10, as we think about when Jesus comes as the one, God promises shepherds, but but here Jesus is the good shepherd. God promises that he will gather his sheep. He promises, in essence, that he will shepherd his people. And Jesus, in John chapter 10, listen to what it says. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. We know that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these verses in Jeremiah chapter 23. As the good shepherd, he would gather, he would protect, he would lead his sheep, and he even says none of them would be lost. Not one. We know yet that not only is Jesus the good shepherd, he is also the king that Jeremiah speaks of that will reign as king. The one that would deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The one whose name would be called the Lord is our righteousness. Listen to what Paul would say about Jesus when he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 about Christ. He says, he "He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God promises a righteous king that would deal wisely and that would execute justice. And Paul says, Jesus is the one it wasn't David, it wasn't Solomon, it wasn't some king after that, it was, it was the one we call Jesus. He came to shepherd his people and to rule his people. Why did God make this promise? Why did God promise that this king would come and this king would be righteous? Right here in Jeremiah 23, why is this promise made? Well, first of all, because none had existed so far. Even the best of kings were failures. Even the best of leaders in Israel or Judah's day had fallen short and all of them had died. They, they were not able to rule eternally. And Perhaps even even greater reason that he makes this promise is that as God looked at his people, whether he looks at them in that day or in our day, the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, that we have no righteousness of our own. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that that no one is righteous. No, not one. But Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter three, that even though that no one is righteous, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Remember it was through Abraham's faith that he was credited with righteousness. And God now promises that there there would come a king who would be called the Lord is our righteousness. It's a beautiful reminder that, that the righteousness that God demands is a righteousness that God gives, that God supplies. Two quick takeaways here. When we think about the gospel, the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, the gospel is based on principles of righteousness. We have to remember that God's standard, he is faithful to that standard and that he will not reduce his standard. That's not how salvation works. God does not just look at sinful humanity and say, they're really bad, I'm gonna lower my standard. No, he keeps his standard perfect. He's holy. His standard hasn't changed. But what he does do is he provides one who would come and maintain his standard a king who would be righteous, a king who would ru- rule and reign in righteousness. Friends, one of the things that we have to remember is that our greatest problem, one of the, we could define it in many different ways, but a way to explain our greatest problem is this, God is holy and God is righteous. And that is our problem because we are not. And God is not going to somehow lower himself or lower his standard and become less than he is to somehow bring us to himself, he maintains that standard of righteousness and he provides a savior who would be a shepherd and a king who would come and rule and reign over his people in righteousness and provide them a righteousness that we could never have obtained on our own. Paul said it so well in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God demands that we be righteous, that we be holy, that we be in the right standing before him. That's his demand of us, and none of us are. This is why it's our problem. God is holy and righteous, and we aren't. It's not as if God just sweeps things under the rug and says, okay, I'll just overlook their sin. No, he sees our sin and he holds us accountable because of our sin. And yet what he does is he provides a a substitute in our place. So the son of God leaves the glories of heaven and he comes in the form of a man. He lives a life that is perfect, perfectly obedient to the law of God. And yet he dies on a cross to shed his blood for our sin. He's raised on the third day He ascended into heaven. He rules at the right hand of the Father right now and he's over us. It is through this king that we have hope of righteousness because he is righteous. So that in him, in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It is not in you, nor is it in me. It is in Christ. Christ. We find righteousness and hope there. So the gospel is based on principles of righteousness. number two, the gospel will be successful so we can confidently go forward in mission. In Jeremiah, God promised of this coming king, of this Messiah, he says, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king. He shall execute justice and Judah will be saved. You hear the language there of of certainty? I will, he shall. Then you get to John chapter 10, verses 14, 16. I read earlier and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Listen to what he says. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Brothers and sisters, it's a reminder to us as even as we get to the New Testament, this this theme of remnant continues on because God is still gathering his remnant. God is still gathering his people, not just Israel, not just Judah, not just the Northern Kingdom, not just the Southern Kingdom. He is gathering his people from all nations and all peoples and all tribes. He is gathering them in. And friends, we have absolute confidence that they will come. Gives us great confidence in the work of evangelism and missions. I know that some of us get so weary and so discouraged when we are communicating the gospel with our, our friends, maybe coworkers or family members, and we just, are they ever going to get it? And we, we grow weary and discouraged. What, what's, what good is this work I'm doing? Why spend time yet again talking about the claims of Christ with this person when it seems as if they have checked out and have no interest whatsoever? Why do I give myself to these opportunities? Why do I give my life to this kind of ministry when it seems no one is listening? And let this be a reminder to us that God is gathering his people. And Jesus says, I've got others that are not of this fold, and they will come. The voice of the good shepherd continues to call this this shepherd is gathering his sheep. This picture of return from exile here is, is a picture that we could, we could see the spiritual reality even today as, as we all are in bondage and God is calling out his people. So you have this theme of, of a righteous king that God supplies. Not only that, you have this theme number three of a certain future. The third behold in this text, you see it in verse seven, Therefore, behold the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought us up who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Jeremiah twenty-three, one through eight, is truly a word of hope in the midst of a pretty bleak book. Here in verses seven and eight, he reminds them yet again of that day when the people would return to their land and it would be a new exodus. This time, they're not being delivered from Egypt, but from the North Country, from Babylon. And this liberation from this captivity would be so overwhelming to them that the exodus from Egypt would be a past memory. It would hardly be remembered of of this current generation because of the the bondage which they're now being delivered from in captivity in Babylon. They're being brought back to the land and they would be restored. Once again, Jerusalem would be rebuilt. The temple would be rebuilt and the people would even renew covenant with God. And you think, okay, finally, God's promises are going to be satisfied, fulfilled. Fulfilled. And yet what we find is that though the people had been physically delivered from exile, their spiritual condition was still very much in captivity. Continue to read the Old Testament. They do rebuild. They do renew. But it doesn't take long till they return to their old ways. They continue to disobey the voice of the Lord. Idolatry becomes a struggle again. And all these things, all these old patterns continue to emerge yet again again but friends there's good news three times in jeremiah 23 we've seen this language of behold i'm going to do something or behold the days are coming but we see it again we see that same language again in jeremiah chapter 31 in jeremiah chapter 31 look at what he says behold the days are coming And no longer shall each one, of the, uh, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. What we find here in Jeremiah, you see it in Ezekiel, is that even in the midst of all of this covenant language, there's yet a promise of a new covenant. It's not as if God is totally abandoning the promises that he had made in past covenants. But it's going to be through this new covenant that God's promises that he made to Abraham and David, for example, are going to be ultimately realized and fulfilled. He's going to have a people and he's going to give them a king. And it's in the new covenant that he accomplishes that very reality. We know, friends, that this new covenant would be inaugurated at Jesus' death and it would be at the Last Supper with his disciples that Jesus would take the cup and he would look at his disciples and he would say, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Friends, it would be through this new covenant that the promises of God would be sealed and secured for his people once and for all writer of hebrews picks up on that we see it in chapter 9 verse 11 hebrews 9 verse 11 it says but when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption For the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. God's promise remained, so much so that he establishes a new covenant. So his promises didn't fail. We see all the way through, even in the midst of a bleak book like Jeremiah, that God is relentless in keeping his commitment to his promise and to preserve for himself a people. And brothers and sisters, that promise remains, and his people can rest even now today with absolute confidence because he brought this reality into being by sending his own son to be the one who would bring this covenant about in a new covenant, a covenant that he would secure himself with his own blood as he died for his people. And friends, as we find ourselves waiting today for the full and final deliverance of our own struggles, in a way of our own Babylonian captivity, we could say. As we wait for the second coming of this promised king, we can be certain that just as sure as he came the first time, he's coming again. And he's going to reign. And he's going to rule. And we will be his people in his place forever because he is faithful to his promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself and that you have revealed your promises to us. And God, all the way through scripture, we see that even when we wreck things, even when we're at our worst, you remain at your best. Because you, Lord, could not, you can never deny your own character, You, you remain perfect, and your promises remain perfect. Father, we're thankful that you did not leave us to ourselves and that you did not leave us to somehow work redemption on our own. But Father, you gave us everything we could ever need so that we could be in a right relationship with you, so that we could have a right standing before you, so, Lord, that our sin could be covered and that we could be considered righteous before you, Lord, not because we are, but because of Jesus, because he is. And, Father, we thank you that even through his life, death, resurrection, and ongoing intercession and promise to return again, Father, that it is that, it is these promises, it is these realities that we find our hope and our peace with you. So my prayer, Lord, is that, If there would be anyone here today that would not know these promises in full, that they would not know what it means to be counted among this great remnant that you have. Lord, that you would open their eyes and that you would call them out of captivity and that you would give them everlasting life. That they would realize that only by faith in Jesus Christ can that life be known. Father, would you work in their lives today to bring those realities to pass. And Father, for those who know you, would you encourage us by reminding us of your faithfulness and your steadfast love. Even as we see these truths today, Father, would we be encouraged to to delight in you and Lord, to continue to serve you because you are faithful and you are good. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you first loved us and gave yourself for us. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.